Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Okay, welcome to uh, uh, another edition of the 10% Happier podcast. Before we get started, I want to say uh, that something has happened that I never thought was going to happen, which is we reached our one-year anniversary. We started this thing as a total lark. I kind of expected, because I'm a pessimist, that uh, we would fizzle out and die pretty quickly, but that has not happened, thanks to you, uh, everybody who's listening. I'm, I'm incredibly grateful that you continue to listen and you know write little reviews once in a while and give us good ratings and all that. So keep doing that, please, and just know that I'm really grateful to you and also extremely grateful to the people who've come on and been our guests and all the folks who do the work behind the scenes here at ABC News. So I'll stop gushing, but uh, please know that I'm, I'm really psyched that we're at this year point and hopefully many more years to come. Uh, so this week's episode comes from the uh, cross-country meditation tour that we did not long ago where we got that ridiculous bus um, and drove across the country and talked to all sorts of meditators and wannabe meditators and jacked up meditators, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, on this stop in the trip, we, we stopped at a really counterintuitive place, uh, the Virginia Military Institute, where you would not think they would be uh, doing meditation, but they are. Um, and this is one of these episodes where it's going to be co-hosted by me and uh, my friend and uh, man crush, uh, Jeff Warren. Jeff Warren is one of my favorite meditation teachers in the world, and he and I went on this cross-country trip together. And so it's interesting to be at VMI because uh, neither of us is eligible to serve in the military. He because he's Canadian and me because I'm old and I have a checkered past. Uh, but the folks that we're going to talk to or that we did talk to and that you will now hear from are qualified to serve. And they are Professor Matt Jarman and Professor Holly Richardson. And they're both doing incredibly interesting work at VMI with the cadets. So here you are. Enjoy Professors Jarman and Richardson. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Thanks, guys. Welcome. Uh, Matt, let me just start with you. Just describe for us, if you would, what you do. So I'm a psychology professor. I'm in the psychology department, and uh, I teach a leadership class. And uh, this semester, I've started a new class called Modern Warriorship. Uh, and uh, in that class, we're essentially teaching them to be uh, warriors, which is to say, to be mentally and physically prepared to help others, and uh, meditation is the key mental tool that we're using for that. Do you think when students sign up for modern warriorship, they think you're going to teach mm-hmm. them to meditate? I, I do mention it in the course description, just in case that might turn them off, but um, it doesn't seem to face people. Really? Well. Yeah. Doesn't? Yeah, no. Interesting. Yeah. I'm very receptive. And uh, Holly? Yeah. What, what's, your, what's your role here? Yeah, I'm in physical education, uh, and I teach a mindfulness class. This is the second semester of uh, our mindfulness class. Uh, we follow the curriculum of uh, what they're doing in UMass, uh, Massachusetts uh, Medical School. Where, so, where they, uh, just, to, just to explain that to folks, that's where they really invented mindfulness-based stress reduction. Right. Invented by this towering figure, I think, in American life, John Kabat-Zinn, who was a, a molecular biologist who really mm-hmm. came up with a version of meditation that s- stripped out the metaphysical claims and the religious practices and just gave you the, the, the mindfulness. Yes, absolutely. And, and that's the curriculum that we're following, uh, his, his curriculum. So uh, we, we've had a class this fall. We have a second class this spring. So we're excited um, to bring this to VMI. So I have so many questions about how this goes down here. But I, I want to start just by 
um, drawing out a little of your personal story. So, Matt, how did you start meditating? Uh, it started in graduate school. I took a course uh, that was essentially about meditation and mindfulness. Um, and, uh, and I started there, and right even before the class, I, I read one of the optional readings and kind of was hooked. I had always been looking for kind of how to be more productive and effective kind of mentally, and this seemed like the, the perfect tool for that. And do you have a military background? No. Okay, so you can teach here and get the, the outfit without actually having right. served in the military. Right. Most faculty are not, uh, do not uh, have military background, uh, and, but most full-time faculty are in uniform and they receive a, a rank in the Virginia militia. Right. Um, mm. And so it's, it's, it's kind of more to enable the tradition, the military tradition, to, to continue so that they can be in that military environment. What about it? What about the practice of meditation? Why did you feel you needed it? What was going on in your life? I, I think it was always just the search for how can I be more productive and efficient uh, and uh, decrease stress, increase concentration, and, and this seemed to do that. I mean, I mean, graduate school was, was the thing that was going on, you know. And so you weren't looking to commune with the cosmos, per se. It was really no, just no. about... No, no. Yeah. It was just kind of how can I be as kind of optimally functioning as possible in terms of just getting work done, and this, this has done it for me. Mm -hmm. How, how would you say it's done for you? I, I just, I find that I'm far more mentally efficient uh, in terms of doing my work and productive when I meditate. I meditate daily be, largely because I know if I don't, I won't be nearly as productive or good at what I'm doing. Do you think it helps you stay on task? The exercise of trying to focus on one thing, I would imagine your breath, and then getting lost starting again, getting lost starting again, it just really helps, it trains the mind to be right there with what you're, with whatever task you're trying to perform? Right, yeah, yeah, so I'm, I'm much less kind of scattered, uh, you know, and, and if I do find that at the end of the day I'm kind of tired and depleted but still need to do some work, then I'll do another short meditation session, kind of replenish that and get back to work. And, and Holly, what about you? How did you? Yeah, as an undergrad, I uh, was taught transcendental meditation and um, did that for a few years uh, and um, kind of walked away from it, uh, fell out of, of that practice. And then uh, about three years ago, I uh, began uh, reading John Kabat-Zinn and taking a look at the brain research of the possibilities of mindfulness. So I've uh, come back to it, uh, and my practice is now steady. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to bring it to VMI, that I was getting benefits. I was uh, um, reading about soldiers uh, being deployed and coming back from deployment, and how mindfulness uh, does, in fact, uh, studies suggest that there's really good evidence that this is a tool that they can use to help with post-traumatic stress disorder and um, uh, some of the challenges they come back with. What did it do for you personally? Why did you, why did you want it? Well, at first, I think uh, when I was 20, I probably wanted to see nirvana. But uh, decades later, I f felt like I was uh, a bit more, I was reactive to things. I was... Um, kind of losing my cool a little bit more than uh, I wanted to, and um, started again. Um, and uh, it's really helped calm, calm me, focus me. Um, um, I laugh more. I uh, uh, feel like I am 
a more authentic person because of that meditation practice. Wow. And do you have a military background? No. I'm a, a citizen soldier, so technically we're in the military, the Virginia military militia, uh, but we are civilians. And so how did it go down? I'd be interested to hear from both of you, but let me start with you. When you started, when you came to this environment and said, all right, let's meditate, how did people react to that? Well, I carefully, um, yeah, so I guess the great news is there's so much research out there and the brain research that uh, really gives evidence that this does change the brain, it does help, and this environment for the cadets stress is endemic it's it's pervasive and so when i first got here i was very concerned about the welfare of cadets as other faculty are and and i just realized stress will be here it will be here in the cadets life so um i flipped the way i was looking at the cadets health and uh, I thought about mindfulness and bringing that tool to the cadets so they could withstand their first year year here. Or as a uh, senior, they you know have the wherewithal and kind of the sense of peace of uh, getting everything done they need to graduate. So it's, it was kind of a roundabout way that I felt like students could benefit. And Matt, what about you? Did you get funny looks when you, when you said, hey, I want to teach meditation? To well, so I teach a, a leadership course that's required uh, of all cadets, and, uh, regardless of major. So I had a kind of mix of, of majors. And, and, uh, and in, in that leadership course, I wanted to have a med meditation component, but I was worried that, about how they would react. So uh, first, I just called it uh, mind fit training kind of detention training, which is in some ways a more accurate description of what they're doing you know, in terms of its outcomes. Uh, and I didn't mention meditation. I got no resistance. And then I realized that they didn't really care. Like, there was, so, so from then, from after that first semester, I've, I've just called it meditation, and I've gotten no resistance really? at all. None. Mm -hmm. And pe many people report uh, finding a lot of benefit from it. Uh, I offered they can do it as extra credit, and you know, some choose to do it, and those who do often report benefits. And, and uh, and then and now that I'm teaching the modern warriorship, uh, you know, they maybe knew a little bit more that they were what they were getting into, but still, I'm no resistance. They knew they were taking a course with the weird professor. So right. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, the guy who does stuff, yeah. meditation yeah. stuff. Yeah. 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 Do you want to jump in here at all? Yeah, I'm just I'm interested. Uh, what you said about the um, um, post-traumatic stress disorder, mm -hmm. some of the research that it's showing there. Um, and I'm wondering if uh, you've had, you know, through here, there's been more, any more discussions around that or, and, and how, you, uh, how you think about that piece? Um, that's a great question. And um, in, our, in the mindfulness class, uh, we, we talk about different populations that could benefit. And so we spend a fair amount of time with post-traumatic stress, what it is, uh, and how the application of mindfulness uh, for that, uh, that diagnosis. Um, mm. And uh, certainly the cadets, I would say most all cadets are aware of post-traumatic. Uh, we've had in the past uh, veterans return uh, being redeployed from VMI. So 
it's it's on people's mind, not so much now, but certainly um, uh, seven, eight y years ago. So I, again, um, they know it, and uh, some have experienced it. Yeah, yeah um, just how do you think it, it helps? Like, what do you think is going on in the meditation itself that uh, actually can make that difference? I have some thoughts too, but I'm just wondering how you frame it. Right. So, uh, in terms of uh, the signs and symptoms of that post-traumatic stress disorder, it allows that individual to become present, to to be to come uh, become still, present, aware of uh, a, a small thing as the breath can change uh, that mindset of that individual who is challenged with post-traumatic. Mm. So I think it's, it's uh, uh, switching the channel, so to speak, mm. um, and the switching the mindset of, you know, the video of being um, back in uh, conflict and, and realizing, no, I'm here, mm. I have my breath, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm okay. So I think that that's certainly the, the first and immediate thing that happens. And then, uh, again, in terms of uh, being more relaxed, uh, less reactive uh, in terms of their emotions, uh, kind of dampening down that, um, I guess, the highs and the lows, uh, kind of bringing those together. Uh, so I think that that's... Uh, certainly are, are benefits that uh, have been out there and that soldiers have, have used. The yeah, it's amazing because you can um, apply it after the fact, after they've been in combat, after they've had those experiences, but you can also apply it before the fact. You, know, you can begin to do that training, which prepares you in the terms of the resilience. Yeah. And Absolutely, and um, I guess that's the, the beauty of it. Um, in terms of deployment, reemployment, but uh, and everybody has the capability of of, of doing this, you mm. know, in terms of um, breathing and and med meditating. Um, the it's the practice that is challenging. Um, yeah. But, and and also, I mean, there's there's recent research looking at how meditation practice in uh, soldiers pre-deployment can teach them skills, cognitive resilience, so that um, they are you know, less affected in these negative ways afterwards. Uh, one issue that's been brought up is that there's a, uh, the military often uses stress inoculation, or they'll put you in stressful situations, and that yeah. depletes mm -hmm. the kind of resources you need to oh, interesting. deal with stress. And then and you go out and you're, you're depleted, and you're in a stressful situation. So if you combine uh, meditation practice, and if you combine the mental fitness component, um, it it kind of acts as a buffer and helps you so you can benefit as much as possible from that stress inoculation because that, that can be valuable, but also giving you the tool to kind of replenish those resources so that, you know, so that hopefully you don't get to the PTSD point. Mm. Or, wow. And so you see that resilience building up and in, uh, in, in you've seen it in your students? I, yeah, and it, it'll be exciting to take a look at uh, the student evaluations where... Uh, you know, came back to they are using this practice mm -hmm. from from their from their course. Um, uh, we have uh, a member of the rifle team, and 
she uses it uh, during her, her, her rifle uh, team practice, but also in competitions. So, uh, yeah, we're seeing it being, being used. And um, we talk about just many, many seconds where if they have to uh, go in and uh, um, see the commandant for uh, maybe a demerit or, or punishment, uh, that again, they have their breath, they have that that presence of breathing three, five times, going in and um, having a, a more productive conversation with uh, someone who's handing out uh, punishment or demerits. Yeah. What is the focus of your research, and and you, and, and can you talk a little bit about more about what modern warriorship means and mm -hmm. the role of mindfulness within that? Yeah, sure. Um, so in the past, I've looked at um, things related to uh, problem solving, uh, creativity, also to psychological well-being, and also social change. I'm very interested in, in change, um, uh, in creating social change and the, the cognitive processes that, uh, within people, and then the social processes and all the things that produce kind of desirable social change. And so from my perspective, uh, a warrior is one who uh, creates change of some sort, the root uh, the kind of you can trace the the word war to kind of creating dis disorder and, and change and so essentially you're changing some undesirable process right mm -hmm. and so that can be in a military context but the way I'm thinking about it it can also be in the business sector even at home if it's creating some sort of change in a process for the benefit of others so it has a helping component as well uh, and warriorship uh, the way I'm talking about it is is the mental and physical training the discipline training to allow you to be a more effective warrior to, to allow you to be mentally and physically ready and able when the time comes to to help others whether it's kind of this systematic kind of if you're leading a big change in an organization or if it's just helping someone who needs help on the street all of a sudden but being mentally and physically ready for that but is is, is your broader definition culturally acceptable within the military? Because sometimes you hear people in the military describe their essential job as killing people and blowing things up. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. I don't know if people might have different definitions of warriorship. I think that you know, there's often discussion of is it, is it ethical to, to train, uh, to, to teach meditation practice to, this, to people who might be killing others? Um, is that ethically sound? Uh, from my perspective, if, if you're more mentally and physically kind of the mental training allows you to be better at making decisions, acting quickly, reaction times. So in my mind, it, it allows you to do your job better, which hopefully results in as few casualties as, as, as possible. Um, so I'd rather, if someone is in a profession that requires that sort of action, that, that they be as mentally sound as possible. Yeah, I spent some time with a woman who was training uh, Marines to meditate, and she said she had taken a lot of blowback from traditional Buddhists saying, you're, you're making better baby killers? And she said, no, I'm making people who kill fewer babies. Mm. Right. Mm. right. Yeah. yeah. What kind, what would you say is the biggest obstacle that your cadets face in either starting meditation or maintaining it? I think, in general, one of the biggest challenges to any new practice, which is why people, you know, constantly fail at New Year's resolutions and, and things like that, in, in the research, you look at habit formation, and there are certain conditions under which you're more likely to form a habit. Uh, research shows, for example, that um, 
we, we tend to, we, we have a resolution, right? We have this intention at the beginning of the year to do something. Let's say it's meditation. Uh, research shows, though, that the, even the brain uh, kind of structures that are responsible for, uh, for intention are different from those that govern habitual action. So just because you have the intention to do something doesn't mean it's going to become a habit. And in fact, whether it becomes a habit has to do with kind of contextual cues. You know, if, if you want to meditate, but it's extremely inconvenient to meditate, you don't have the space set up, you don't know when you're going to do it, even if you really want to, it's not going to happen. So, so one of the first uh, topics that we discussed in my class was research on habit formation and how do we do that. And, and uh, so identifying some kind of contextual cue that occurs regularly that you kind of pair that habit with. Um, and uh, so, for example, uh, my cadets, they will meditate uh, in the morning for a 15-minute period and then also five minutes uh, of meditation right before they do uh, start getting to work on homework. Because I figure what's something that they do every day, they, they, do, they have to do, do work at some point, right? So if they can tie the meditation to that, then hopefully even when they leave this class, that'll still be a cue that'll prompt this, this behavior. And the, the key piece with habit is if it is a habit, habits don't require you to exert willpower, right? Because you just do it, right? So people think you know, it takes a lot of willpower to start a new, to, to, to do this new practice like meditation. Well, once it becomes a habit, you don't, it doesn't take any extra willpower, right? So that's the key. We need to make it a, a habit because otherwise you're constantly having to exert this willpower to make yourself mm -hmm. do something that mm -hmm. is difficult, right? So we're trying to make it not so difficult and just kind of automatic. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com -E slash happier. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile. Third line free on essentials via monthly bill, credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. What else can you tell, say more about habit formation? What other useful tips and tricks have you ferreted out? Um, in, in the research they, they talk uh, about, uh, so the, the, key piece, the key pieces are, you know, Habit formation requires some repetitive act. Um, it requires um, contextual cues. They can be a particular time of day. It can be a particular environment you're in, people you speak to, um, and uh, and then an inter intermittent reward um, so is, is ideal because um, the goal is that the 
the habit be kind of intrinsically motivated. You're not doing it just for some reward. Um, you know, so it's like uh, slot uh, yeah, slot machines. You don't get you don't get payback every time, right? So it's that intermittent reward that kind of you're not doing it for the money. You're doing it for the game because you don't get the money every time. So that can't it can't be extrinsically motivated so much. If that mm -hmm. makes sense. Yeah, it does. Um, so so with meditation, for example, I think the rewards are in, inherently a little bit intermittent. You know, after some meditations, you feel like after some meditations, I feel wow, I'm. Like I'm in the zone, I'm productive. Right? And others, you know, I feel more calm, but, you know. Just, you know. And so, so those kind of big changes in my ability to perform uh, are somewhat intermittent. So that kind of satisfies that requirement. Um, and then, you know, creating, I do it at a particular time uh, of day. Uh, and then also uh, one good strategy is if you have an existing habit, you can tie it Link to, it to that, that yeah. yeah. Which yeah. is where the homework comes right. from. And they right. do the homework, right. just tie it to that, and then you're good. Did you have something? Yeah. yeah, this is absolutely fascinating. I think a lot about this too. And and when I look at uh, friends of mine and students and who successfully have a meditation practice, it's because it's become automated. You know, right. they just roll out of bed. This is the time they do it. They think of it as brushing the brushing their teeth or something. It's right. just they've made it into a habit. But you said something really interesting, and I think I want to just make sure I understood it which is that actually intermittent reward of meditation is part of what might make it work as a habit in the sense that you sometimes there's a feeling of it being, wow, I feel phenomenal, I feel really great. But other times you meditate and you might still feel a little bit scattered or it's not like a perfect guarantee all the time. But you're, are you saying that, that that intermittency actually can be part of uh, what uh, helps it be a practice people stay with? Yes, in some that's ways. Such an, I've never yeah. thought about that. Yeah, I'm, yeah that's my understanding of, of the research. Uh, yeah. Basically, that they're saying, because yeah, if, if, it were, if, if it were only for those kind of you know, amazing benefits for meditation, then you know, if, if you didn't have them a few times, then, then you'd stop, right? Because why are you doing it then? But, but if, it's, if, if you know that it's intermittent, then, then you know, you're not... You're not going to stop if, you, if there are a few meditation sessions where your mind still feels scattered. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, that's so important. I mean, it's such an important principle to teach, to give people, let people understand the big picture of a practice is that it's not going to be all you know, unicorns and roses every day. Right. It may never be that. Right. But, but even like the really nice, juicy feeling absorbed and feeling calm. Uh, there's an analogy that one teacher uses that he says he compares it to exercise, or he compares it to running. And he says, you know, in, um, in running... There's the, um, uh, the, there's the reason you're doing it, which is better cardiovascular health, but then there's the effects of running. And sometimes you might go running and feel invigorated. Other times you feel breathless and exhausted. Other times you feel in pain. Every run, you're building towards better cardiovascular health. Sure. So you can't depend on the actual effect of what's happening in the run uh, to, to tell you anything about whether you're getting that result. And it's the same with kind of meditation. Right. You can have these wonderful experiences, but really you're doing it for better sort of social, you know, psycho, mental, emotional health. Yeah, I'm glad you said that because for me personally, the, the, it, I don't judge the quality of my practice. I try not to judge the quality of my practice based on the quality of my last sit. Mm. I base it on like, am I less of an idiot overall? And that is, I think, the... That's where, that's the reward for me that I sure. continue to, to get from it, and that's why I keep doing it. Right. And so what do your students say about the, when they, if they try to articulate the reward overall, you know, the kind of how they see it changing them, what, what are the, some of the ways you, what, are the, what do they say, what do you hear? Well, I think that the students uh, in my class would go back to just uh, a, a, something that had happened in the day, just uh, an incident with a, 
a roommate or again the commandant or just uh, being able to step back and not be on that treadmill of what if what if what if that that they do see practical applications in in their life um, and uh, but I also um, kind of work them toward someplace in their life uh, that they want to ha have a more authentic presence with or less stress with or, you know, to, to have them think about a purpose as, you know, narrowing it down to a specific need that they, they themselves have. And then um, uh, kind of uh, apply that practice in a specific way and let that practice grow for the kind of overall mind-body benefits. Oh, so that's, that's, mm. uh, that's one philosophy. Can you give an, exa an example that comes to mind of that, of work? Yeah, so it was interesting. Uh, the class that uh, I, I, I taught, we had a, a number of different cadets. We had commissioning cadets, we had seniors, we had athletes, and um, the, again, the, the athletes certainly use it um, uh, before, you know, before a game or before a, a practice. And uh, again, uh, there are journals, and I have them journal uh, and regarding their reflection on that practice, uh, which again helps uh, to, I think, maintain that, to let them see just maybe the ups and downs of that practice, and it it may not be mind um, blowing one day, but uh, that they're more focused at on, on the game, or uh, you know they take the coach's uh, criticism or positive feedback in a, a better way. A more yeah. so I think that uh, I think with the cadets that I have. It's it's they want specific things to happen, but also uh, I I kind of introduce the, those practices for that reason. So the guiding the the core of our mission on this little road trip we're doing here is to try to figure out what's stopping people from meditating, or what's messing up their practice. Um, you mentioned before just the, the the obstacle of setting up a habit. What else is there? Uh, what else do you think gets in the way of people starting, uh, uh, in this context here, um, a meditation practice? Well, I think, mm -hmm. I mean, you know, you, you have to, we tend to focus on the person when we ask why, aren't, why isn't this person doing something, but, you know, you have to also have to take into consideration their environment, and, you know, some cadets tell me that, you know, their, their roommates kind of make fun of them, you know, just kind of mm -hmm. in a friendly manner, um, but, uh, but they also say they ignore it. Um, and so that's one thing, or even just you know the fact that others others may not be doing it, and even even if it's not kind of against that, it's still not you know environment that's really encouraging it. Which is why that habit formation and and kind of creating the habit is so critical because without that you know and, and there's just so many other activities here and and here in particular their time is very structured and they're very very busy, um, which is why I try to explain that you know, meditation is not you shouldn't view it as 
you know, losing time by meditating. It makes you so much more mentally productive and efficient that you're actually gaining time. But what do you say to people who say, oh, people are going to make fun of me and think I'm weird if I do this thing? Mm-hmm. Right. What, what, what's the practical advice you give those folks? Well, in, in a modern warriorship context, I actually just had this conversation with them yesterday. Uh, part of kind of being someone who is preparing to kind of make change, you know, when change is necessary, mean, it means that there are, you're going to be going against a lot of people. So I, I view that as wonderful practice. So, you know, if, if you can't do something as simple as meditating and, and be okay with the fact that others might think it's a little weird, then, you know, then, then you know, you're not really getting to the training yet. So, so I'm, I actually am going to be having them do stuff that, that will make them uncomfortable. I, so, I love how you're turning that around yeah, because brilliant. they're worried that they're going to be called a wuss if they meditate, and you're saying, right. no, actually, you're a wuss if you don't. Right, yeah, because, I mean, if you can't meditate and, and deal with the fact that they're, you know, make, I mean, it's such a minimal threat as far as, you know, on the grand scale. Yeah, um, part so, of being a warrior is going against the stream. Right, exactly. So, yeah. so that's just one other opportunity to practice going against the stream. What about for you? I haven't let you weigh in on this issue at all, which is like, what do you think of the of the cadets you're dealing with? What are the major obstacles to actually doing this practice? So just a, there's yeah. a great quote from this guy who we're going to talk to later on our road trip, who says, um, "We know the medicine works. We just can't achieve compliance." I think the cadets would tell you, "I don't have time. I don't have time throughout the day to to start a practice." First of all, they need to know how to. So I think, you know, courses are so important. You know, basic mindfulness, 15 weeks, 10 weeks. I think that's critical to, to have a, an instructor uh, really setting the stage and providing evidence uh, that this can help. And, and the practice, uh, taking the group through that practice but also requiring, as odd as it, as simple as it may seem, homework uh, in terms of coming back, reflecting on that, and mm-hmm. and uh, putting that part of your practice. So uh, I would say time. They this this image of I don't have time, and then also again I guess it, the misunderstanding of what is it, what what is mindfulness. Uh, and then I think another important part is just role models. Uh, having role models, uh, right. having populations that they can look to uh, or look toward and, and say, gosh, you, you know, I didn't know that uh, coach meditated. I didn't know, you know, the Marines were f- some of the first to uh, adopt that, uh, that tool. So it's giving them context and um, uh, so, who do you point to? You point to the, some of the coaches on campus, or the Marines are doing it, or th- th- who else do you point athletes. to? Athletes. A- yes, a- I would say athletes, uh, pro pro athletes. Um, uh, again, there are a number of uh, faculty and staff who have been deployed uh, that um, have come back and they practice. So. Uh, they are great guest speakers. So uh, people that uh, the cadets see as someone they'd like to emulate. So I think that's yeah. important. And in terms of, you know, we, we've been sort of trying to taxonomize the, we call them the secret fears that stop people from meditating. We may have a new one or a new way to frame one of them, which is that people are going to think I'm weird yeah. if I do this. Yeah. And that seems to be the big 
fear, or one of the big fears here, and they've these guys have come up with ways to to you know one uh, if. You know, to reframe it as like, you know, if you're if you're actually going to be mentally tough, you need to be able to withstand that peer pressure. And two, look, there are tons of of uh, tough, not weird folks who are doing this. Yeah. You can do it too. Ab absolutely. And I was thrilled when one of the central administrators showed up at our uh, mindfulness meditation. It's like, yes, you know. So, uh, you know, he does it. He bought into it. Uh, you know, and he he's a tough he's. He's a tough soldier, so yeah. Uh, yeah. I have a, a question based on something you guys said, um, which is, you know, we're acknowledging that there's a kind of warrior spirit in going against the stream, and and that can really help. What do you mean by going against the stream? So that's a classic term in which in which is used in Buddhism. Uh, they say the momentum of everyday life is to just continue tumbling along, unheeding, mm. just to go along, to go along, to kind of keep ratcheting it up, to actually stop and pause and take stock of your life and decide to not go along with that is considered to be going against the momentum of the culture. Mm. So it's, there's something kind of inherently, um, you know, um, there is a warrior quality to that, very much. Um, so so I, I, think, I think that's really important to emphasize, but at the same time, you, the reason it's hard to do is because all of the contextual cues from the environment are to say, don't mm. do it, you know, or that's not important. So to have a kind of environmental wrapper where it's okay is quite important. That's what people say about having a community to sit with, for example. That once a, once a week you can sit with the community and it kind of normalizes it. Mm -hmm. So do you have anything you're doing in, in around that, like a kind of regular weekly meditation? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah we, we, uh, we, uh, Holly and I are coordinating a uh, uh, mindfulness meditation uh, thing twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays for 40 minutes, open mm -hmm. to faculty, staff, and students. Uh, and, and yeah, so, so people are welcome to come, we'll offer instruction if they need it, uh, and, and we'll, we'll meditate, and, and yeah. So. It, isn't there a quality of warriorship, though, to the actual practice? You are, mm -hmm. you are facing the, the, the insane torrent of your own mind, sure. and you're willing to sit there and deal with it, and every time you get lost in the chaos, you're, you're like, oh, I notice I'm lost, and start again. That takes... Sure. Uh, a spirit of warriorship as mm -hmm. you define it. Right. And, and there are many meditation traditions that will talk about how, you know, meditation isn't this soft, kind of fluffy thing. It, it, you know, you're facing your fears, you're facing your stresses head on, you're kind of leaning into them. Mm -hmm. uh, and and it's, it's giving you the tools to do that more effectively and to not be kind of swept away by them. Um, but it, it certainly in, involves that process. And, and so in, in some ways, there's the idea that to be to be best able to help others, you need to first help yourself, and yeah. and that even that requires you know this acts of, kind of warriorship. Um, but yeah. I, I love that you emphasize that because that's something that's so refreshing to hear. I think one of the criticisms of, of meditation is somehow that it's self-indulgent. Mm -hmm. mm. To frame it as actually, it's just it's it's a basic it's sanity to be able to help yourself become more efficient at helping others. Right. You know, you get clearer and saner and then out of from out of there that's where you extend your helping hand and it'll be much more effective in that in that exactly. well and it brings up um you know a, a tradition of um, um mindful kindness you know loving kindness meditation and, you know, in terms of uh different mantras or different uh phrases that that we all could uh 
mm. teach people, or certainly instructors. Mm -hmm. So there are different lines and menus that you could pull t to really pull out that compassionate warrior, I guess. Let me just jump in and define that for some, so some folks might not know what loving kindness meditation is. It sounds hopelessly syrupy, um, and I was deeply resistant to it when I first heard about it, um, and, it and it actually in practice is, is I, I often describe it as Valentine Day, Valentine's Day with a machete to your throat because you basically are sitting there envisioning a succession of people, people you love, people you have problems with, people you don't even know, and you're systematically sending them good vibes. Um, and I, I, again, I think a lot of skeptics will be like, that sounds pretty annoying. But actually, there's an enormous amount of science, enormous amount. There's a significant amount of science that suggests that not only does it have a lot of health benefits, but it can actually change the way you are in the world. Sure. So I wonder, as given what you just heard about my skepticism about loving kindness meditation, how do you introduce it at, at Virginia Military Institute? Very carefully. Um, so... Um, very carefully. So, yeah. Uh, so, I'll, I must admit, I haven't tried the loving kindness with cadets. Um, uh, I have tried uh, uh, a mantra that uh, Thich Nhat Hanh. Uh, Thich Nhat Hanh is a famous uh, Vietnamese Zen master. Yeah, yes, yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And just the simple, uh, you know, I'm at peace. You know, I am still. I am here. So uh, that's as close as I've gotten mm -hmm. to loving kindness, mm -hmm. uh, to, mm. uh, uh, to confess. But that's a, you know, I bring that into my practice and, and uh, it's, it's helped. So we'll see if I can, if I can go against the grain uh, to, to bring that, that yeah. type of meditation here. Just bringing it back before we, I'm sensitive to your time, so uh, we'll, as we head toward the conclusion of this, just to bring it back to our mission here, which is really to ferret out what are these, as we call them, secret fears that are stopping people from meditating. I wonder, you didn't raise this, so it may not be an issue, but um, one of the things that, that was an, an obstacle for me, and, one of, and we hear this um, at the 10% Happier app company that we, that we have, we hear this from people, um, from customers, which is a fear that meditating might erode your edge. And especially in a military atmosphere, you have to be tough, you know, and your, your job ultimately may be to go out and kill people and, and, and blow things up, that if you meditate, you might become too soft to actually do that or to compete against your peers. Is that something that either of you has encountered? I really haven't. Really? Yeah, that's so interesting. interesting. I, would, I would look at it a different way. Okay. That, that the, you have that focus. You, you have a pinpointed kind of focus, like an arrow. That's, that's how I, I see that in terms of not so much losing your edge, but really focusing that edge. It just like focusing that edge to, to what you do, whether it's warfare or, you know, Wall Street. So I would, uh, I might disagree with, some of that. Oh, but. well, I totally disagree yeah. with it. It's just a secret. I mean, my whole, yeah. our whole mission is to identify clearly what the psychologies are at work mm. that are preventing people from doing this thing that would probably be good for them and to knock them down. Yeah. I don't think it reduces your edge, but I think it, 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 is, it is a fear out, out there. there. Yes. Yeah. And, I, and I feel like it's probably a, a fear more that people have 
who are not don't really know what meditation is. Yeah. Right? So that's one of the problems, the baggage that the word meditation has. Yeah. So you know, I never just talk about meditation without first explaining, you know, all the kind of the rationale yeah. and what it's doing. And so I, I think if people realize that it's, you know, honing their attention and, and their mind, then mm. how can you think that would how could that possibly get you to lose your edge? Yeah. So, so I think mm. understanding of the meditation practice and its goals uh, is critical. And I always explain that. There are different types of meditation with different objectives. This one has this objective, and so I think that helps. Uh, thank you, guys. Yeah, really, you. really great yeah. to sit and talk with you. Really appreciate it. We're going to actually spend the, uh, some time with some cadets yeah. as the as yeah. the day yeah. proceeds. Uh, so, should we try to slip in some covert loving kindness yeah, somehow? That, that would be, yeah. I don't if I should even risk this. Yeah, I might yeah. get hit with a bay bayonet. Yeah. Self compassion might, practice. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I'll just yeah. get them to visualize Dan in a robe with a with yeah. a blow dryer blowing his hair back, putting yeah. down on yeah. a ribbon of love. I, I like that image. Okay, there's another edition of the 10% Happier Podcast. If you liked it, please make sure to uh, subscribe, rate us. And uh, if you want to suggest topics we should cover or guests uh, we should bring in, hit me up on Twitter, at Dan B. Harris. I also want to thank heartily the people who produce this podcast and really do pretty much all the work. Lauren Efron, Josh Cohan, Sarah Amos, Andrew Kalb, Steve Jones, and the head of ABC News Digital, Dan Silver. Uh, I'll talk to you next Wednesday. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the new kids and family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books.